to start, and it's going to be in Hebrews 3. But actually, I'm going to start in Hebrews 1, because I think it's very important. So, if you open up to, to Hebrews, Hebrews 1, um, this is what the author of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become an, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much excellent than theirs. What an outstanding and amazing description of the character of Christ and what Jesus' ultimate authority was all about. God spoke through many prophets, but in the last days he sends his son, the heir to all, through who all things are created, as a perfect example of the glory and image of God. The only one who could uphold all righteousness where all else could not. The one who would redeem us and who now sits at the right hand of the Father with the angels in subjugation to him. So why is that important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. It's important for the author of Hebrews to start with a proclamation of Jesus' supremacy. And for the reader to understand the hierarchical order of thing, all things. Jesus is the Son of God, the perfecter of all things, the ruler of all, the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sins. And he is the greatest among them all, angels, prophets, and yes, even Moses. So one may, one may ask, why? Why is this illustration so important to the readers? Well, the book of Hebrews, also called the Epistle of Hebrews, or to Hebrews, was addressed to Jewish converts who were being tempted away from the gospel and their newfound faith. They were being tempted and coerced to turn away from the gospel and return to their Jewish heritage, the adherence to the law as a works-based righteousness. This was being held up as the way to achieve salvation by their countrymen. These Christians were being pressured to turn away from their faith, and some even came away with a Jewish mashup of Judaism and a sprinkle of the gospel on top. The author of this letter, some say it's Paul, some say it's Barnabas or Apollos, um, knows the audience very well. He knows the Jewish customs of the day. He knows the Old Testament front and back with multiple verses and multiple mentions of Moses and Aaron and Abraham along with multiple Old Testament references throughout the letter, it is fair to say that the author is speaking in a language that they can all easily understand. The theme of the book of Hebrews is a call to the Jewish Christians of the time, a call to Jesus' supremacy, his priesthood, his lordship, a call to push forward in Christ, leaving the old behind as Jesus came, fulfilled the law, presented a new and complete covenant for us. The author calls the readers 
to focus on Jesus as a salvation and the only one true way into the presence of God. This will eventually, oh, excuse me, so that while presenting the warnings of a sinful nature to the people, that will eventually lead to evoke the judgment and wrath of God as it did with the Israelites of old. So while today's scripture is Hebrews 3, verse 7 through 9, I'm going to jump, jump forward real quick and go through 1 through 6. That will give us a good uh, context of what they were talking about. So I'm going to open my Bible here. I'm going to read directly from the Bible. So Moses, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who would share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were being spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what's important here is that word consider. This is an appeal to the Jewish Christians of the time to consider Jesus. And that word consider comes from katanoeo, I think I got that right, in Greek. It means to fully observe, to behold, to discover, and to perceive. The author calls for a consideration for Jesus as the apostle and high priest, the ultimate message bringer, the one who sits at the right hand and intercedes with us as the ultimate high priest. Jesus above all, even Moses himself, is the ultimate example of faithfulness and worthiness. Moses was the faithful servant in the house. However, Jesus is the son of God, the rightful owner and creator and ruler over this house. And we have a part in this house if we are persistent in our faith. There is a good work to do in all his people that will bring about our righteousness and the completion through Christ. All right, so now that we've set the table for where Hebrews is going in this chapter, we're going to dive into 7 through 11. So, 7 starts with, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not know my way, uh, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold 
our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom he, did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So as we see that they are unable to enter because of unbelief. So the author begins with a warning against unbelief by quoting Old Testament. Again, a callback to things that they would be familiar with. He quotes Psalms 95, 7 through 11. And in verse 8, he mentions hardening of hearts, as in the rebellion. This is a direct callback to when Israelites were quarreling with Moses and testing the Lord. In this case, he was speaking about the water from the rock incident from Exodus 17. The Lord guides Israel through the wilderness and then camp at Rapidim where they was, they were there was no water to be found anywhere. Who here likes the outdoors or camping or any of that stuff, right? So what are the three most or major important factors you gotta figure out when you're going to camp somewhere, when you're going to find somewhere? There's three things when you're out in the wilderness, right? Shelter, water, and, well, fire's good too, right? Yeah, fire's good. I'm thinking food, right? So, pretty, yeah, pretty close, right? So we can last three hours exposed to the out, outdoor climate. So if you have some bad, you know, inclement weather or scorching heat, we have three hours. We have three days without water. And then we have three weeks without food. And some of us can probably go a little bit longer than three weeks, maybe four weeks, but some others probably can't. So that's the, that's the rule of three in survival outside, right? So now the Israelites camped, uh, excuse me, the Israelites carried their camps with them on their backs as it tells us in Numbers. Moses goes into great detail about how they would carry their tents with them and how they set up the tents when they camped and where which tribe was where and all that stuff. So that that takes care of shelter, right? And in Exodus 16, a little bit earlier, um, you know, God provides manna from heaven to the Israelites. So then food's taken care of. But we still have that water issue, right? So because of water's great importance, remember only three days, why on earth would God settle these people in this place where there's no water to be found? Well, this wasn't by accident. This was by God's plan and God's sovereign will for his people. He wanted them to rely on God's ability, right? He wanted him to, like, they wanted him to rely on God, or the Israelites to rely on God. That was, that was God's plan. He wants to provide for them. He is their comforter. He wants them to, to come to him for all sources of, of their, you know, needs. But of course, Israelites didn't do this, right? They moaned and groaned against Moses and against God. And in Exodus 17, 3, it says, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So the same is true with verse 9 in Hebrews 3, where your fathers have put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So the Israelites tested God's faithfulness. They tested his patience with them at every single turn. And at every turn, God provided for his people. He still provides in comforts for his chosen people at every turn of the way. Every testing, every moaning, he provided for them. Now you may, in your lives, have a family member or a friend, or for you parents out there, a child, or for your children, maybe it's a parent, that tests your patience at every turn, that does their best at provoking you, that does their best at pushing all of your buttons, right? And how do we react to that? What do we do? Do we lose our temper? Do we lose our cool? Do we get upset? Do we get mad? Sometimes, right? Yeah, usually. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we may turn away from our friends. We turn our backs on them. We leave them if, if the situation is bad, if we feel like they've, they've offended us in some way. Right? That happens. But God never does. God never turns his back on us. His steadfast patience and faithfulness to his people is never wavering. In the face of all of this testing, all this moaning and groaning, the Lord still provides and comforts his chosen people. Because of this, because of his, his comforting, and because of the continual moaning and groaning and testing of his patience by the Israelites, God was provoked by this generation and saw into their hearts. He saw their unbelief. He saw their anger and frustration and their lack of surrender to his sovereignty. We get a glimpse of the Father's heart in Psalm 81, 10 through 16. God's desire is to provide for his people if only they would submit to his rule and reign over their lives and have true faith in him. God, according to his sovereign will, did not provide for them due to their unbelief in their heart. He would not pour out to their stubborn or hardened hearts. His merciful call was to them like it is for each one of us. However, their sinful nature has turned their backs to the call from the Lord. In verse 11, we learn the penalty of this from the Israelites' rebellion. Because their hearts were hardened and went astray, they brought about God's just wrath and that generation would never enter the land promised. And that land was God's permanent physical place of rest for them. We see this spelled out in Deuteronomy 1, 34 and 35. And what is that, what does God's rest look like? What does God's rest look like? We should be on slide 10. It is to give you a little bit of a, a sneak peek, it is formed and fashioned after God's rest on the seventh day. And in Genesis 2, 2, 3, it says this, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on, God, on it, God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. The rest was not because God was tired, it wasn't because he was worn out from all the work of creating the, the world. It wasn't like, God does not get tired, right? It wasn't because he was tired. It was because nothing needed to be added to his perfect creation. He was done. 
He was done creating. So he sat back, looked at it, thought it was good, and rested, and made the seventh day holy. God's rest from his work was a foreshadowing of things to come in the future. This rest was a foreshadowing of the rest that we find through Jesus. His work is perfect and complete through which he has achieved salvation for us all. But of course, Israel did not enter the rest. And there's far more laid out in Hebrews 4, but I felt it necessary to give you guys a little bit of a backstory and the weight and balance of Israel entering or not entering the promised land. So the author transitions out of Psalms and now is going to issue a warning for the readers, for the Hebrews of the time, or for the, from the Christians of the time. Excuse me. In verse 12, the message is clear. Do not have a hardened heart of unbelief. This unbelief is not due to their lack of understanding. Remember, they knew God. They understood God. They had an awareness of God, but rather a matter of choice and opposition to God. The tribes, of, the tribes of Israel knew God. They understood the majesty of his creation. They saw his signs and wonders. They understood the promise. Yet, they tested and tried God like petulant children. Charles Spurgeon says of unbelief, Hearken, O unbeliever, you have said, I cannot believe. But it would be more honest if you had said, I will not believe. The mischief lies there. Your unbelief is your fault, not your misfortune. It is a disease, but it is also a crime. It is a terrible source of misery to you, but it is justly so, for it is an atrocious offense against the God of truth. In verse 13 and 14, the writing turns from a warning to an encouragement. So here's like, well, your warning, don't do this, and here's your encouragement, what, what, what should you do? The call is to exhort one another, to spur each other on in the faith. As Christians, they had a commonality that was their faith in Christ Jesus. It was their responsibility to encourage one another, to care deeply for each other's salvation, and to ensure that sin does not creep in and chip away at the confidence that they had in Christ. Who here remembers Super Bowl 51? Does anyone know what that is? Patriots versus the Falcons. So if you're, sorry, if you're a Patriots fan, right? What happened, does anybody know what happened to that Super Bowl against the Falcons? How did the first half go? Not, not good, right? Right? So they were, they were getting blown away, right? But what did they do? The second half, of the, did they fold? Did they pack up shop and go, yep, we're out of here. This is, this is not going to work for us anymore. We're done. We're leaving. No. They put on. They persisted through that game. They pressed on. They pressed forward. And what did they do? They had the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. They scored 25 points in the, thir the fourth quarter and, and overtime to win the game. They came back and beat the Falcons 34 to 25, 28, right? They persisted. They persisted, and they kept going. They didn't stop. They didn't fold up. They didn't, 
closed shop. They didn't fold their tents up and leave. They persisted. They kept going. And that's what this verse is all about. It's about encouraging one another to persevere. In Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The deceitfulness of sin is that it can be hidden. It connives its way into our lives, no matter how hard one of us tries, no matter how many prayers we do, no matter how much we read of the Bible. Sin is deceitful. And we are, we are humans. We are, have sinful natures. That's not to say that it's okay and that we should sit back and accept it. We need to be vigilant against deceiving ourselves. Every little sin builds upon each other, on another, and soon you'll find yourself with a hardened heart, with an attitude of self, and not of God. That's why we need each other as a church. That is why we need to be exhorting one another to hold fast to that faith that we have in Christ. Think of all that the Israelites had seen, right? And all they experienced. They experienced the plagues in Egypt. You know, they had seen God's revelation in, in their exodus out of Egypt. They experienced parting of the Red Seas, manna from heaven, the water from the stone. They received comfort and mercy from the Lord, yet they all rebelled. In Numbers 14, we even hear after all that they had witnessed that the Israelites desire to choose a new leader and return to Egypt. After all they had been through and all they had witnessed and all of the provision from the Lord, they wanted to go back to Egypt. This is a depiction of when they reached the promised land. They were there. They were at the end. They were at the promised land, and they were looking at the promised land, and they sent the spies in. The spies came back, and what did the spies say? This land is inhabited by strong people with fortified cities, and we can't get into this place. We, we can't do it. Right? In Numbers 14, it says, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back. After all that they had seen, and all that God provided for them, that was their, that was their choice. be I think 15 Pierre or actually 16 going on 16 now so verse 16 and 17 emphasizes this rebellion as a warning to the reader all who re all rebelled who provoked the Lord for 40 years they all provoked the Lord they all rebelled against the Lord all of Israel fell Israel died in the wilderness and were not able to reach God's rest for them all but Joshua and Caleb because they followed the Lord 
fully. In verse 18 and 19, it goes on to tell the readers what Israel lacked. They could not enter into the land because of their unbelief, and their unbelief led to their disobedience. The moaning and groaning came first, the unbelief second, and the disobedience third. They failed to hold on to their faith. They did not hold on to the promise made by their God. As warned earlier, they did not persevere. Instead of encouraging one another in the faith, instead of keeping a watchful eye out for sin, they succumbed to sin of unbelief due to their circumstances and anxieties. Sounds familiar, right? We all have circumstances in our lives. We all have anxieties in our lives, right? Psalm 78, 21 and 22 states how unbelief leads to God's judgment. It says, Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. You can imagine, you can imagine a circumstance or an a, a event that happens that tries you, right? Maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's physical, maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's emotional, whatever that is, but something comes and, you know, starts out small and continues to grow and build and build, right? What do we do there? What do the Israelites do? The Israelites complained, tested, and fell away from their faith. For the Israelites, for the early Israelites, the promised land was their physical rest. Moses was chosen by God to lead them from Egypt. However, along the way, things got difficult. They got anxious. And how did the people react? With testing God's patience, with provoking his judgment, and straying from the truth. That all led to their just punishment for their unbelief, their hardened hearts. They went astray and were not able to enter the land of God's promise. In a new text, excuse me, in a new text, can't say that word, in a New Testament context, there you go, our belief centers on the superiority of Jesus Christ, the truth of who he is, fully God and fully man, and his atoning work for us as a faithful high priest. When we trust in these things, making them food for our souls, we enter into God's rest. Rest from our work, rest from our fear, rest from doubt and uncertainty. We rest knowing that the work of Christ is complete and has secured our eternal redemption. The rejection of Moses resulted in God's judgment expressed in a temporal or earthly way by forfeiting the lands, while the rejection of Christ results in a judgment that affects both physical and spiritual conditions of us. The judgment of Israel for rejecting God through Moses was not far-reaching for it only pertained to one generation, but the judgment of rejecting God through Christ is irreversible. So therefore, we need to be alert to sin. Sin is sneaky. Sin is misleading with its promises. Sin directs your thoughts. It changes your behavior. 
distract detra distracts us from our values, distracts us from what's important. It pulls us away from God if we let it, and it can harden our hearts and cause us to stray from our faith. And without our faith, what is there to anchor us to morality? What is there to anchor us to obedience to God? What is there to thwart off sin? What is there to impede that, that self, sense of self that each one of us is called to rebellion? Self-indulgence and self-importance. Second Timothy tells us of a time when we will turn away from the truth and listen to lies. For the time is coming when a people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what's a practical way that we can make sure that we are not straying from the truth, that we're not falling away from the Lord? We can encourage one, one another. We can spur each other on to be persistent in our faith. The church, the body of believers, needs to be in concert with one another, constantly praying for one another to ensure that we stay focused on the Lord. Paul gives us a great example of this in his letters to the, uh, letters to the Romans. Romans 1, 9 through 12. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And what is that? That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul's letter displays his love for them, his care for their eternal souls, and that they may be examples to those around them. Not only was it for them, but it was also for him. It was in a mutual exchange. He desired to be with them, and for what reason? To exhort them, to encourage them. And we can learn from this example. I challenge you to be forward with encouraging one another. Reach out to one another. Lift each other up. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them how their walk is going. But be there to support them. The closer we are as a church body, the more we can lift each other up. The further away we will be from unbelief and a hardened heart, and the closer we will be to having the rest that we find in Jesus. And I know there's... A, there's a lot of circumstances happening with a lot of people here at church, with our families, with our friends. There's a lot of things happening. We just talked about Todd this morning. There's a lot of circumstances that affect us. What do we do? This is, this is a lesson for us, right? There's, there's words of wisdom and truth in here, right? What do we do? Do we consistently test and stray away and be distracted from what's important, what's, what's really deeply important? Or do we push into God? Do we push into the faith that we have in Him? Right? So there's a lot of, a lot of people in this church, a lot of friendships for years and years. Continue to support each other. 
Continue to reach out. Continue to pray for one another. Be there for each other. But be consistent and persevere. I'm going to close today with the way I started, Hebrews 1, because this is exactly the image uh, of, of God. So Hebrews 1 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in the last days he sends his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs.